Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 88. I'm not sure I wanted to count last week as episode 87 because that was sort of more a Kona episode, but I think they're just numbered the way they are, and there's not much I can do about it. Why do I want to keep that separate? Well, because I have something brewing for episode 100, and that just means... I was planning on an extra week or some extra days for that to happen. And um, yeah, I need all the time I can get to prepare for that special episode 100 that I'm going to do. I think it looks like sometime in February, and I'm really excited to announce what that may be and what's going on for that. So the Weekly Word Podcast, man, we are up to episode 88, and it has definitely... Um, changed over the years of doing this. And I can actually say years, like I talked about the other day. But um, not only is it about ultra endurance events and adventures and how to train for them and the nutrition needed and the hydration needed and the things to keep in mind and the body composition and the strength and stability and footwork and strength um, for trails or for cycling or for rowing or for climbing or for um, ultra swims, uh, marathon swims, or for triathlons or ultramans and all those things. I mean, any adventure I think is applicable on what we talk about here, going really, really long and the mindset that goes with it. But how this uh, podcast has changed for me over the years and what I wasn't really expecting when I started this is talking way more about the balance of how to live an ultra endurance lifestyle despite having a full-time job, despite having a family and children and activities and um, uh, weekend responsibilities and requirements. We have houses that need to be taken care of and activities and soccer games and baseball games and church events and community events and volunteering and then also our own training and then also spending time with family in just the setting without, you know, maybe a lot of activities and then and then and then, right? And then we have a full-time job during the week and how are we training then? And You know, in a lot of cases, many of you are doing multiple sports, right? Let's say triathlon, where, you know, we got to fit in swimming, biking, and running. And and you can't just just do it all on the weekends. So that's what we talk a lot about here, too, is how to navigate through that. And understanding that there's phases in our lives when we can train more. There's phases in our lives when we can train way less. But how do we maintain some sort of connection to our peak fitness and abilities and future growth, right? Even if we're doing very little, there is a path towards growing fitness, growing knowledge, growing ability to continue to do ultra endurance events. I mean, I spoke to somebody today, just now, at some practice. Um, I know I'm always talking about this podcast or on this podcast after a swim practice, but it, it is sort of in the middle of my day and it invigorates me and it gets me fired up and there's a lot of topics in there, which I right away will have the first one on. But I was talking to somebody today. She used to be a 100-mile um, runner, winner of a variety of events, a 228 marathoner. She is uh, she's a 100K national champion and uh, an older friend of mine. And uh, she just returned to swim practice for the first time 
in what I would say, probably haven't seen her in two years. And she's awesome, but she also has a full-time bakery um, that she and restaurant with it that she manages and runs with her husband. And it's like, you know, for her to find the time to train and do hours of running and do strength and TRX and CrossFit, as well as stay connected to 100K, 100-mile runs, as well as uh, represent with regards to sponsors and so forth, it's a lot. And, you know, she was a great example of somebody just to talk to, well, how are you making it work? What, you signed up also for an Ironman this summer, this coming summer? So it's about, yeah, well, I try to maximize the limited training time I have. And we spoke a while and caught up a little bit. And it was the same wording that we talk about here. About, yes, there's trade-offs. And understanding that I'm doing a little something every day, that I have a path and a coach, she has a, a coach that I'm also friends with, a good guy, um, and they have navigated a path that she knows every single workout, even if it's just 45 minutes, even if it's just a 30-minute CrossFit section, e- uh, session, even if it's just you know a 90-minute short run on a Friday morning, right, or today's one-hour swim. It is still part of a building block, part of a Jenga tower, right? Is I think that's what they're called. That you keep putting the pieces in properly, you can build a pretty substantial tower. Now, we don't want to take those pieces out, right? That's the whole point of that game. But I'm envisioning how that tower and how those pieces all stably set, settle on each other and build a pretty solid structure. Same thing. That individual 30-minute workout, 60-minute workout, 45-minute workout might not be a big deal, but when you put them into a bigger component, into a bigger puzzle, they tie a lot of it together. A whole area, a whole section of a puzzle is tied together with a few small pieces. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what we're trying to figure out and discuss also here and help each other on how to navigate through this and how to remain connected and um, focused on those adventures and those endurance events and those outcomes and those results. I mean, there's plenty of you listening that want to win your age group in Kona, that want to qualify for Kona, that want to win um, a marathon. Um, So, and, and, and we all know each other with regards to that I coach you, but there's also many of you that I coach that are on your first 10K, your first half Ironman, your first whatever it is. I have athletes, I've said this before, uh, many people write me and they're worried, oh, well, I'm not good enough for you yet. That's, that's not true at all. I have athletes that don't know how to clip in their bike into their biking shoes and therefore never leave the garage to ride outside on their bike other than when they changed, when they had the pedals changed back to where they can wear sneakers and they only ride indoors. I mean, it's fine. Eventually we'll get there. Eventually we'll figure it out. But for now, it's about fitness and it's about having fun and it's about enjoying the health and the progression and the growth we're going through. And we'll figure out that other part down the road. I'm not too worried about it. So that's the Weekly Word podcast. That's the longer introduction on why we're doing this. That's why I'm here to help, to 
clarify, to show it's possible, to support, and to um, continue to um, pull back the curtain on that it doesn't have to be that complicated, that there is a, a way to navigate through our busy lives and still be able to do the events in a healthy, sustainable manner um, and not burn bridges at work or with family and continue to grow as a person um, in our own health and fitness, but also for those around us that see, wow, that person is still able to balance it or figure it out or set their priorities straight. And that's how it all comes together, right? The big word there is priorities. So um, the other thing that I was going to quickly talk about um, that I've come across in two, three emails just now and uh, also noticed in swimming this more this morning and I thought more about I have noticed that a few of my athletes don't use a pace clock to swim. And some of them are frustrated that they're not getting better swimming and they're just using their Garmin watch when they swim. And there is an issue here I have with this. And I'm not saying this is the golden ticket to get faster, but swimming on a send-off interval is very important with regards to monitoring your progress monitoring your fatigue, and gauging your effort level and output. Let's just say you are a 130, 100-yard swimmer on average. Like if you jump in and just swim 1,000 yards or 800 yards, and you comfortably just hold a steady 130 pace. Let's just say that. I know that's solid, um, but let's just use it as an example. Well, that means if I give you a set that says take 10 seconds rest, if there's only, let's say, six 100s that we're doing, and you can comfortably hold 10 100s continuously on one thir- at, at swimming a 130 pace, well, then you should be able to do four 100s on the 130 send-off. And that shouldn't be that challenging. It should, it should tax you a bit, but it shouldn't be that challenging, which means you need to do four times where you swim like a 120 100 and get 10 seconds rest right? Or 118 or 122. What happens when we learn to swim with a pace clock is that you learn to gauge your effort on the first and second one. And you know, the third and fourth one, as that rest is getting less, and you're further into a rest less, a less rest 100, you have to up the effort. And it requires smarter, faster, more focused swimming. Let's compare that to if you swim 100 just with 10 seconds rest. Well, the first one might be 120, 120 or 122. You get your 10 second rest, you go on 132, right? You push off. Then the next one might be 125, 10 second rest, you just go. The third one might be 128 and the fourth one might be 135. How do you know? That's not progression. That's not fitness. That's just swimming. And that's not swimming with intent. That means you're just getting your 10 second rest, but there's no focus on pacing and speed and digging in in order to hold the effort. Um, That means it's just arbitrary with regards to speed. You want to swim with a send off. You don't go to the track and run 10 400s. I hope not with let's say 30 seconds rest like that. You hopefully take the 30 seconds rest that a coach gives you and gauge that and say, okay, that's basically on two minutes for me. I'll run quarters, 
400s in 90 seconds. That gives me about um, 30 seconds rest. So I'll do those 10 400s on two minutes. That's how you want to do most of your training in general. You want to be able to manage to a specific send-off interval. And it's very important in swimming because most gauge their effort and their focus in the wrong way. And what happens is all it is, when you swim that 120, 123, 126, and 133, that means you're just swimming on what is perceived the same effort throughout versus you want to swim a pace. You want to be focused on an outcome for that 100, get your rest and go. That means you might only get seven seconds rest or eight or 12 or four. That's up to you. That's how you need to engage a kick or how you need to swim faster or harder or how you need. That's what swimming with intervals is. It's a very powerful, effective tool so that you swim or run or cycle faster, right? If I didn't give you wattages for indoor cycling intervals and I just said hard, right, or um, strong effort, well, the first one might be 200, the first two-minute interval or four-minute interval, whatever it is, might be with one-minute rest. Let's say four-minute interval with one-minute rest. The first one strong might be four, uh, uh, 200 watts. And then after, um, uh, after average 200 watts. Then after the next one, the average drops to 192 because you're tired from the first one. And now the third one drops to 187. And then finally get some a little bit more oomph because you know it's the last one on the fourth one and you go back up to 194. Well, that's not the same training as four times four minutes at 200 watts with one minute rest, right? You don't change the number. You don't change the wattage. You need to keep something constant in there so you gauge your effort, so you focus on how you're cycling through those four minutes to maintain the 200 watts for four minutes. So I think that's very important for clarity for all of you swimming, and especially my athletes, but for those of you swimming in general, one, you never, ever, ever want to just do straight swimming in a swim workout. Many, many triathletes just do that. They just jump in and swim 35 straight lengths, or they swim 50 lengths and get out. You want work. You want intervals. You want recovery. You want to focus on form and technique and pacing and effort and streamlining, colliding and drills, all those things in order to become a better swimmer. Now, if once a week you said, all right, I'm going to swim 45 minutes straight, that's fine. I occasionally do that too, where I jump in and do 1,000, an 800, a 600, a 400, a 200, a 400, a 600, 800, a 1,000. I like that. Just You find a rhythm, all of them with a minute, and you just swim. That's fine. I get that. But most of the time, you want to be running, uh, swimming with purpose, right? And that is why swimming is so different. You can't do it the proper speed way. And people would say, well, it's why don't we do that with biking and running? Well, biking and running, you get enough oxygen and you're not swimming through a, uh, running through a thick liquid or cycling through a thick liquid where you have different resistances and so on. But not different resistances, different resistance water, right? Um, it's a different way to approach swimming. There's definitely the opportunity to swim straight along and go. And open water swimming and lake swimming is great for that. But when you're in the pool, you should be doing it on a send-off. So I hope that helps. I go into a, a lot of uh, emails this week 
um, I just start rattling them off. I have a bunch in my email folder with regards to question towards me, uh, towards the podcast, not just only towards me. And then um, I also recorded something with regards to Kona early on in this first segment, and I did a crappy job with regards to noticing that the mic was not properly working. So the mic was working, but my... Um, it wasn't properly po- plugged in and therefore it wasn't recording. So it sounds like I'm a little bit distance and for, in a tunnel. The problem is I could totally record that again, but the, the value of it, un, um, of it just flowing like that is gone then because uh, I'll listen to that section and try to repeat it and it just sounds um, incorrect. In general, I don't record with any type of editing. I don't record with any type of Um, I do make some notes occasionally of things I want to talk about, but that's more on a bigger picture. Um, But I don't edit. I don't prepare how I'm going to talk about something. I try not to read because you guys can all tell when I'm just sort of rattling off reading or talking like a robot. That's it's not the same. And this is a very informal, casual podcast where I just try to get out information and helpful insights as well as a mindset to take towards the training, to not take ourselves so seriously, to play the long game, to um, have the ability to, like I said earlier, balance it all and just say, you know what, I'm doing the best I can. Doing the best I can. I'm still going to achieve my goals. I spoke to an athlete the other day. He had to back out of um, New Zealand and a six-day stage race right there, the one I was thinking of doing. I mean, the guy just had a baby and a variety of other factors, and we had a conversation around it. Again, he's going to keep running, and we're going to find some 50Ks and some different events locally, but the endeavor of going to New Zealand and taking this on where the training hours and the weekends and are just not available right now, it would have set him up for not failure. He probably is resilient and has done one of these before to know what he's getting into, but he would have definitely been miserable. He would have definitely been not been as um, motivated or enjoyed the unbelievable experience it should be. And so with that, also the training the last few weeks would have been hectic or trying to fit it in, or feeling guilty, A, that you're leaving the house with a newborn, or that you're not really doing enough training to make the event even worthwhile with regards to sacrifice. So I'm leaving the house for two, three hours to go for a run. I feel guilty that I'm leaving the house for two, three hours, four hours to run. But I also know that these two, three, four hours aren't really enough to prepare me for the event I'm leaving the house for. So you're in this this stuck situation. And many of us have gone through that in training where we know we're not doing enough to prepare for the event and that makes us feel shitty, but it also makes us feel shitty that we're leaving the house or leaving work or or sacrificing in some way, friends, loved ones, career, whatever else it might be. And so we're not doing either effectively, right? And Try, try not to set yourself up for something like that because that's really um, where you just feel disappointed all the way around. You know you're capable of more at the event and you had envisioned a different path 
and B, you're, um, you feel like you're disappointing those around you because you can't really give it your all anyway. So they're going to think you're giving it all, but you're not really giving it your all. So they're going to support you in giving it your all, but you actually need to give more. You can see how this spirals out of control. Instead, we found other events and he's going to he's going to have a great spring. He's going to get into really good running shape in a different way. And maybe we'll do something six day um, stage race type of thing in later in the summer. The, his baby will be one by then. Things will have settled. He will have built his fitness gradually over the season with local events and and created races and fitness via that. And then it won't be such a big leap to suddenly crash course train for something bigger. So that is what this week is. Um, so uh, uh, a short uh, debrief of what I missed about Kona. And that's the part that I recorded with um, bad sound. So please bear with me with that. I hope that's okay. I left it the same to keep it as natural as possible. Um, and then I go into a bunch of emails. So enjoy this week's podcast. As always, please let me know any feedback or how you're liking it or any questions or anything you want me answered on the podcast. And uh, yeah, I am off to Florida for a couple days to visit my parents. Um, they're not getting any younger. And so therefore, I'm pulling the kids out of school. And off we go. Because um, yeah, I, I want to spend time with them and see them and not miss the windows of opportunity to do that as well. So there you go. Enjoy this week's podcast. It's funny to me how after I record an episode, I often think about new things to add to that episode or to the topic we talked about. And last week was a great example of that. Um, once I was done recording the Kona sort of broadcast podcast, um, download, whatever we want to call it. Um, there were a lot of things that went through my head that I wanted to add to that. And I also had uh, some feedback and some emails with regards to that um, broadcast. Oh, I keep calling it a broadcast <clears throat> as if I'm somehow on the radio. But that's all the thing. also the thing with this podcast is that I don't edit it. I don't have a script. I don't have a, a, a clear path on what I want to discuss. I just sort of shoot from the hip based off the emails that I read, the emails um, of training peaks and workout log and other updates that I get from athletes, as well as current topics, as well as questions I've received or feedback I've received about the previous show or whatever's going on in the sort of ultra endurance triathlon world. Um, throw into that a few other current topics with regards to what the athletes are doing, what's been brought to me, and so forth. And it sort of rounds out a show, a podcast, an episode. And so with that uh, lack of editing also comes that I wanted to follow up with a few things from last week um, regarding the Kona debrief and uh, what came up. And what I, what I wanted to highlight is that the results of Kona, um, not with regards to the record time, but with regards to people uh, blowing up, let's say, on the run or wondering if they bike too hard. That was a very current, uh, not current, common theme of feedback from a lot of athletes in Kona, not just mine, but of other athletes I talked to. 
some of the front runners, some of some who had higher expectations, some of the pros. It it um, was a common observation. I'm not saying that those athletes were blaming their outcome, their result of not being as good as they wanted to uh, to finish due onto that, but I do believe that there was a current theme of the day. And I bring it up here because there's some incredible learning in that. And that's exactly what we've talked about with on this podcast. And that is, it's a perfect example of changing the race plan mid-race and adjusting the reality of the day versus the expectations of the day. And what does that mean? Well, while many athletes were out there this year on the bike, seeing a faster split, seeing cooler temperatures, seeing that they were feeling better, they adjusted their race plan and their expectations mid-race. And I saw it in not only my athletes, but also some friends and other athletes racing, that they then thought they would do better for the day because of how they were feeling on the bike as well as how they were splitting on the bike, meaning how they were looking to finish their bike split. And so if your output is giving you a fast time, let's say you're 75 miles into an Ironman bike and you haven't really worked that hard yet, your watts are somewhat coming easy and or your pace is somewhat coming easy and you're way ahead of where you projected you would be, 10, 15 minutes faster bike split time checks, well then you could go a few ways. One, you could say, I haven't really worked that hard on this bike. I should be working a little bit harder. What am I doing? Ride a little harder. Get more minutes out of this cool day. That's one way. The other way would be to say, wow, I am having a great day. I'm going to get a bike split that's 10, 15, even 20 minutes faster than I expected. Therefore, I must be fitter or feel uh, uh, didn't realize how fit I was for this day and therefore I can risk a lot more. I can push harder on the run. I can push harder the rest of the bike or, or just stay right here. And then there are those who recognize stick with the race plan, stick with my expectations, stick with what I would be happy with, stick with the execution because there's still a lot of real estate to go. Those experienced in Ironman racing know that nothing can be evaluated until you're a good ways into the run. As I've said so many times in coaching, a few times on this podcast, but I've said to my immediate circle many, many times over the last 20 years of racing Ironman, anybody can be fast in T2. Reach T2 in a fast way. Anybody can swim and bike. Because in our training, we're fit enough to swim well and bike strong because we prepared for an Ironman. So doing three quarters of it, Fast, ahead of ourselves, above our pay grade, isn't that hard to do. Anybody can swim and bike fast. Anybody can get to T2 fast. Now, what happens? Did you overbike and therefore fall, go backwards on the run? 
were you conservative on the bike and therefore now have an opportunity to shine on the run? Did you, are you going backwards in your placing, in your age group, in your avatar of the time you wanted to do if you're not racing for age group or, or placing? That's the key observations, decisions, um, execution that you're looking for in an Ironman. Being able to run off the bike. Anybody can swim and bike hard, no less. But what can they do on the run? And so this highlighted itself even stronger in Kona this year, in my opinion. It became mid-race adjustments. Wow, I am now biking a 450 instead of a 510. I'm biking a 530 instead of a 550. And then next thing you know, we run a bit too hard or we just change our outcome. We change our expectations. We change who we thought we would be on that day and therefore our expectations change. Now, what happens if overall you go 15 minutes faster or 10 minutes? Let's say you give up a few minutes on the run because you biked a little bit too hard, but you're still five or seven minutes faster than what you expected to do that day. I saw many athletes last week or 10 days ago in Kona going that they were upset with their race or that they felt they could have raced better, but yet they're seven minutes faster than they expected. Again, changing the expectations versus the reality during the race, mid-race. If I told you you were going to go 9.45 in Kona and you had planned that if I can go under 10, I would be very happy, but now you went 9.45 or 9.52 or whatever it is, and you are now going, man, I think I could have gone even faster. What? 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 No, that's not fair. That's not fair to yourself. That's not fair to your training. You exceeded your own expectations. Who cares what kind of day it was? The point is, is that you went faster than you thought you would go. Be happy with that. Accept that. Grow from there. Of course, you're going to get Kona experience and know that there's cooler years, faster years, harder years, difficult years, and so forth. And so that's, that's what I wanted to follow up on um, with regards to that race and the expectations and how the day unfolded for a lot of athletes. My friend that I talked about who probably overbiked, well, he knows he overbiked, he went way faster on the bike than he expected, which is fine. He's fully capable of that. He's fully fit enough to do that. But would 505 instead of 459 on the bike have still put him faster than he expected? I think he, he had said to me he wanted to do about 510, 515 on the bike. So now he would have been five minutes faster than he expected, right? Instead of um, 11 minutes or 20, uh, 15 minutes, right? But would it have saved some energy? Would he have been more relaxed on the bike? Would he have not been chomping at the bit a bit too hard on the last 25 miles of the bike, right? It's all coming so easy, so naturally. It feels so good. Well, then, boom, the bike stops. The wind stops. And the, the wind cooling you while you're cycling where you didn't realize you're pushing a bit too hard. And now the standing air of 95 degrees in Kona on Ali'i Drive hits you. And it's hot, and your legs are heavy. Uh-oh. Whereas 505, 507, I'm still ahead of who, what I thought I would be doing today, and I'm still set up for the opportunity to have a record-setting day. 
And so that's the delicate balance we go by. And finally, the other thing I wanted to follow up on from last week in Kona is that from two or three athletes that I don't coach, but that are friends that I spoke to before the race and after the race, I noticed something. And these are front runners. They play on the front edge of the age group. And they're experienced athletes. But I was very surprised in the coaching that they work with, with regards to one of them being coach, another one being a coach, <laughs> is that they had vague outcomes for their day, vague expectations. Oh, I'm sort of looking for this sensation, this feeling. I just want to do well. I feel good on the bike, so I want to have a solid bike split. And it wasn't that they were holding back information from me, because we were talking details and numbers, and again, we're friends. But it was clear to me that their vision of their day was vague. Their expectations of their day was vague. And guess what happened on the results? The results were vague as well, too. Right? The outcome was vague. Right? You set up vague expectations, you're going to get vague outcomes. And I know oftentimes you can't point to the minute or the exact details of what the outcome will be. But if you have trained on the front end of your age group and as well as all year, as well as in the sport, and you have the experience for this, for you to not have clear numbers and clear parameters around what defines a good day for you, what your expectations are, well, then you can't expect your outcomes to be defined and clear and successful as well. Now, I agree, not every outcome is black and white, that if you go over 10 hours, failure, below 10 hours, success. That's a little bit extreme. But if you go into a race like an Ironman, and this is for anybody, whether it's a 50K, a 50-mile, or a 100-miler, the vaguer your expectations, the vaguer your outcome. And the more specific your, your expectations and your vision and your execution and your strategy and your plan is, the more specific your outcomes will be. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to gauge your outcomes in a critical way too specifically, but I'm saying your outcomes will be more specific, will be more tightly within parameters if you have tight parameters around the expectations. So keep that in mind. How does that look for... Um, an athlete racing an Ironman, for example. Well, maybe you say, I'd like to swim right around an hour, give or take two minutes, right? So now you have 58 to 102 to swim. I'd like to bike six hours, or let's say 540, right? Give or take a few minutes. All right, 112 out of five hours, you know, 5% is... What, six minutes, uh, excuse me, 10% <laughs> is six minutes an hour, so 5% is three minutes, let's say 10%, so 546 or 534. Again, it's pretty specific numbers, but a, a range to, to, be, to be in. And the same thing for the run. You put that together, those ranges, those numbers, on the front end, you're pushing X time, so let's say on the run, let's say now a 345 as well. So let's say we average those out. That's a one hour, that's a 545, and that's a 345, right? Um, that puts us at 930, 1030 Ironman. One, 545, 345. 
Now, if we go to the front end of those percentages, it's probably closer to 10, 10, 10, 15. If we go to the back end of those expectations, it's probably closer to 10, 45. Now, it sounds like a big range, but therefore, mm, 10, 45, I'm still within the percentage of what I feel good about my day. I thought about it ahead of time and I said, you know, if I'm in this range, I'll feel good about it. If I'm in this range, I'll feel great about it, right? And that way we at least have specific outcomes that we know prior that we're, we're not gonna, again, renegotiate during the race, like I was just saying, what we'll be happy with and what we won't be happy with, because that already gives us that. We already have that 30 minutes. Is it a fast day? Well, then maybe you're on the 10, 10 to 10, 15 range. Is it a difficult day and hard conditions? Maybe then you're at the 10, 45 range, right? Still, still your day, still your results. Now we compare those numbers to what others did and that somehow validates our result for us. No, that's not fair to the training and the vision and the, when you closed your eyes and what you wanted the outcome to be, you can't start doing that because that number will never ever be satisfying. And also, when you go into the next Ironman, into the next race, you will not have parameters that to go by. You'll be that vague expectations person because you're constantly adjusting based off of the top 10 of my percent, uh, percentage of my age group. Well, that means nothing. Anybody could be there. It could be a stacked race. It could be an empty race. It could be a full race or it could be a, a not fully uh, open registration up till two days before the race. Like... There's so many inputs there that do not adequately reflect what you're doing in your field, in your sport. And that way, if you focus on that, let's say 10.30, 10.45, 10.15 range, right, that we just described, then next time you can say, all right, I did this. This is my line in the sand. This is my new me. So for this race, my expectations, I'm a little fitter, I'm a little stronger on the run, I'm a little this, I want to fix my um, transitions, I can be in the 10.05 to 10.30 range, right? That's how you move forward, in my opinion. Again, there's other ways to go about this, but you always want to have a hard number, something that you can compare yourself to. Not to others, but yourself too. How am I progressing versus myself? Am I better today than I was yesterday? Am I better this Ironman than the previous Ironman? Am I better this year than last year? Am I fitness, in my progression, in my growth, in my strength, and all those things? Now, you've heard me say before, you can't really compare Ironman to Ironman. I agree. Different courses, different horses, right? Um, hilly, headwind, flat, Cold, hot, downhills, um, uh, drafting, no drafting, difficult course. You know, there's a zillion things. Fast run, flat run, looped run, outback run, lots of traffic on the run, little traffic on the run, ocean swim, lake swim, river swim, current swim, no current swim, against the current swim. I mean, there's a zillion factors that can get involved with that. But, and so then there you might say, well, Chris, how come you can, therefore can't compare to the age group because that's relative to the race? I understand that thinking, but it's difficult to go by those numbers that you afterwards, after the race, determine that that's what made you successful. 
Now, if you want to go into the history of the race, let's say you take Ironman Louisville and say, over the last five years, the top 10% of my age group was this. Okay, now we're getting closer because that's something that we have the different days, different conditions, and a value pre-race that we're comparing to. Not after the race going, wow, I did 10 minutes faster than I expected, but I'm disappointed with my result because the, the entire age group was faster as well. Well, you did what you achieved. You, you set out to achieve. You achieved on the front end of your expectations. How are we not happy with that? Again, stop moving the target. And I'm not talking any specific people. I'm just saying this is a very common thing. And it happens with even, excuse me, ah, um, I just got kicked in the leg. Um, this happens even at the front end of the edge group in Kona. Everybody's adjusting their goals and expectations mid-race, their outcomes, what they'll be happy with. So that was my um, follow-up from last week. Vague expectations equals vague outcomes. And B, don't change the target during the race. Don't adjust the reality versus expectations during the race. I have received a lot of email questions over the last few weeks, and they've been sort of stacking up. Um, and I don't want to overlook any of them because I really do appreciate the interaction um, with all of you and the questions you have and the feedback you give me, because it really allows me to address this podcast to all of you, the listeners, and make sure that the direction I'm heading with this is effective and helpful to all of you. And it gives me an idea of you, the listener, and what you're interested in. And besides my weekly sort of um, tangents <laughs> on balance and lifestyle and mindset, I also want to make sure that I stay true to the training and the insights and the nutrition and the, um, the physiology, the exercise physiology of all this. And so I want to dive into a few more emails, as many as I can this week, um, and I will get going right away. Um, many thanks for the weekly word. The podcast greatly contributes to my training and overall overall well-being. Well, thank you. With regards to running te technique, a source of confusion for me are ostensibly con contrasting pieces of advice. Two, A, stay relaxed. Absolutely. I don't even have to read further. We want to stay relaxed. It allows our breathing, our posture, our muscles, and our energy all to be applied um, fluidly, right? Um, it's all about in endurance, especially it, um, even in speed, even in sprint work, you can see how relaxed the runner is at a hundred meter race in the Olympics or world championships, right? Usain Bolt or some of the runners around them, how relaxed the muscles are while they're running. I mean, they're, they're, they're so relaxed. They engage, relax, engage, relax. They do that at extremely high at extremely high speeds as well as extremely low speeds for a long period of time. Relaxed and bounce and good breathing and good posture. B, keep the core activated. Should my core always be activated while running? And if so, how do I do that while staying relaxed as possible? I found the fun to do 
I find both to be fundamentally important to maintaining proper and sustainable technique, but I'm sure how to re reconcile the two tips. Keep the core activated. Well, if your body is running in a good running form posture upright, head upright, slight lean forward where you run the, the line along your spine, that that's what's moving forward, that you're not just bent, bent through the hips, right, bent over, and your lungs are out and breathing, the core will be activated in its, uh, on its own already. Now, you want to make sure that how you're breathing, are you lung breathing, are you stomach breathing, are you uh, engaging the back of your um, diaphragm, and how are you using your entire midsection while you're running? But keeping core activated is an interesting um, concept to think of during running. It should come more natural, and that then when you're fatigued, especially in an endurance run, that you have a strong enough core, not one that you have to focus on activating, that keeps your posture in place, that keeps your running form upright and relaxed, so that again, bigger lung opening, because you're upright, your head is upright, your throat is upright, everything is not stiff, but relaxed running upright. And I don't want to get that confused with straight upright, looking like you're running like um, a cartoon character straight above their hips and at a 90 degree angle, basically, and uh, 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 their legs are just turning over under them. It should be a slight lean forward. You should be thinking of falling forward, right? And you should think that um, if you tied a, a rope around your chest or a harness around your chest, that it's pulling you from the chest, mid-chest, solar plexus area, chest forward. That's what's the, the impetus of forward movement. Not your shoulders, not your head, not your hips, everything is just gradually being dragged forward from that center spot in your chest and your lungs. And from there, you start your running. And that running form, that somewhat falling forward, leaning forward, and it's not pose method or any type of method, but it just allows you to fall into your stride, into your next step, not dramatically, um, in order to continue your progress and your momentum forward while running. And so, yeah, I would say in this question, I wouldn't think too much about the core being activated, but that it is being used and your strong core and stability work outside of running um, will help in keeping that strong and then activate it on its own without you thinking about it for when you fatigue running. Now, that can happen after 10 miles, that can happen after 8 miles, that can happen after 20 miles. At some point, your core or your body will fatigue, and we want the core to maintain integrity, form integrity for as long as possible. That's basically what that is. And if the core maintains form integrity longer, means our lungs stay open longer, more oxygen to the working muscles and relaxed posture and form, again, conserving energy. And you will get tired further into your event. And then you can start maybe using some of the tips and tricks that you 
have thought about in training to activate. And maybe that's what you mean with regards to activate. For example, when I go for a run, I'm making sure I'm running relaxed and light on my feet. But as I get fatigued, I start thinking about are my arms swinging forward and backwards? Is my shoulders relaxed? Is my core not necessarily activated, but engaged that it's helping my running form stay upright, posture aligned and relaxed? Is my leg turnover still going good? How are my feet landing? I start thinking technique when I get fatigued so that I can think of other things, A, um, rather than the fatigue, the tiredness, but also to maintain form integrity for as long as possible. Because I'm convinced that if I maintain my form, my technique integrity, as long as possible in the run, the splits and the pace will fall off less and less, right? If I just let everything fall apart, I'm quickly not able to sustain my running pace and my running leg turnover because I'm landing heavy and breaking my body down in unfamiliar ways, actually, right? In ways that I don't usually train and therefore it has a bigger toll on me, but I want to maintain form as long as I can. This question ties into a broader to topic of greater interest to me, tensioning of the body while performing. My own experience has taught me that muscle tensioning is key, not just whether or not tension is maintained, but which muscles one is tensioning and which, one's muscle, which muscles one is not. For example, being left-handed, I find that tension seems to build my, in my left forearm when I start to fatigue, which affects my arm swings and overall alignment. Consciously easing that tension helps me correct posture. Yeah, I'm not really sure what you mean by that. I make, I'm going to make the assumption that you are saying that tension um, is not a good thing. You say tensioning is key. Um, and what is important to me here is to share my opinion, which is running relaxed, running where the legs turn over by themselves, running where I'm not using a lot of mental energy, physical energy to continue moving forward at my pace is the overall concept I'm trying to keep here. And of course, there will come a time where things get tighter and things get more difficult. But the further I can get into the event without taxing myself too much and staying relaxed, the better, right? That's, that's the outcome I'm looking for. And that's what training technically is. Um, continuing to push out that point of fatigue where we're running naturally and relaxed for as long as possible. Now, what you're saying with regards to um, focusing that you notice something on your left forearm when you start to fatigue, absolutely, that's great, for sure. If, if anybody has little signals or indicators that they can use to help them recognize that they're starting to fall apart in form or tightening up or fatiguing in a certain way, that's great. I that's totally, totally um, agree with that. So um, I think that answers that. In general, I, I have the same thing. I do uh, use that in the same way with regards to recognizing certain things on my running form that I'm fatiguing, as well as on the bike. And on the bike, I can tell when I start pedaling squares or I'm mashing away at the pedal stroke. 
And once that happens, I shift to an easier gear and try to spin up more. And um, even if that means I need to back off the watts for a, a, a few minutes, but allow myself to settle into a more natural, relaxed cycling form, right? Fear, what we talked about, focused, efficient, which means you have to be relaxed to cycle efficiently, arrow, and relaxed, fear. So yeah, being relaxed and muscle tension and recognizing that are all positives. So, all right, next question. Uh, Hi, Chris, hope you're doing well. Thanks for sending out the written newsletter. The newsletter, by the way, the next one's coming out, I think next week, I have a variety of some pretty good stuff in there. I do have a question that perhaps you could answer in the newsletter or podcast. You've spoken at length about gray zone training. I understand the adaptations for zone two, aerobic, and zone four, five, anaerobic threshold training sessions. I've been training for a 50K, and in addition to my easy runs, hills, threshold, and intervals, my coach has had me doing regular tempo runs, which are essentially zone three. Could you please cover the role goal of tempo running as it relates to zone training? Um, every zone relates to zone training. Um, so therefore, tempo running has an effect on your adaptation and it has an outcome and a result. The question is more if your coach is recognized and, and identified that you need more tempo running, that you need more steady state pace work, um, which might be something very valuable to you. Um, it might be that he wants you in prep for your 50K to um ride steady, uh, run steady state for as long as you can or once a week to, to, to mimic race effort, race steadiness, race sensations. And tempo, Z3, in this case, is very effective for that. Zone two is aerobic, right? To, to just recap that, zone two is aerobic. Aerobic being my go all day pace. Like I can fall back onto my zone two and I can literally run that for many, many hours. And when I'm done running that, I can recover from that very quickly, maybe even within a few hours and head out again. The only thing really fatiguing me there is the pounding of the pavement or the trails or the downhills and so forth. But my heart isn't fatigued. My energy systems aren't fatigued. They might be hungry, low on energy, but they're not fatigued. They'll recover pretty quickly. Tempo. Zone three feels really good. It's a very natural running um, state because the mix of um, uh, sugars, glycogen, and fat burning, aerobic, um, are in a very sweet spot. And it feels good. The injection of glycogen along with the use of fat, of energy, just feels very natural and we set, tend to settle into that quite naturally and it is seems to be just the right um, sensation for a, a run a medium length run and when trained properly zone three basically becomes our marathon pace um, and becomes a steady state pace we can hold probably for uh, two to three to four hours um, zone four becomes difficult now. Not necessarily difficult in a sprinting or a hard effort difficult, but it has heavier breathing. 
it, we have to think more and focus more and pay more attention. The recovery is more necessary with regards to as a percentage of the interval time. Let's say if you do a 10 minute zone four interval, you might need 50%, five minutes of recovery before you really can effectively, effectively being key word there, do another one. And then zone five is getting closer to um, VO2 max effort. They are very difficult, require a lot of recovery, but um, can be done uh, if uh, well and feel pretty good too to go that hard because you really get the burn, but it's not sustainable, not for an hour. Um, it's sustainable for maybe, you know, 10-ish, 15-ish, 20-ish minutes max. And again, all these zones change in their behavior and in their insights towards us. Um, the fitter we are or the unfitter we are or the more muscular power we use. I don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast. There's a muscular power and then there's aerobic heart rate, heart power, cardio power. And so um, for many athletes, many masters athletes especially, their muscles are stronger than their heart. So when they need to put out power, they're using a lot of muscular power. Um, that's your typical um, feeling so off when you're running or especially cycling uphill. You, your watts jump way up, right? You're putting forth a lot of muscular power, but your heart rate um, doesn't respond. Now, so you're putting forth a lot of muscular power, but it's not taxing your heart. Now, if you have a weak cardio, weak heart, but um, strong muscles, right? Those muscles will easily put out that effort, but the heart rate kicks way up, right? And then so you have to slow way down in order to keep it in the proper zones. And so a lot of times we're trying to stimulate one or the other or both. So um, that's why I'm bringing it up with regards to the zones. Some people have a very weak heart, not weak, that's the wrong way to say it. Um, an unfit heart that's not equally as fit as their muscles. And then many others have a stronger heart, but a muscular system that's not as strong as their heart. I know, for example, I have a very strong heart, but my muscular system is not able to keep up with that. So for me, I have to work pretty hard to get the heart rate up. Others, the heart rate jumps pretty quickly despite not putting forth a lot of effort. So, um, and so therefore that's why I, what I was describing with the zones can come across um, differently to a good percentage of the population. I would say 70% feels them correctly, but then 30% has them way differently, feels them way differently. They'll write me an email saying, Chris, how's this possible? I wrote, I rode or ran 90 minutes at zone five where you said that shouldn't be able to be sustained for more than 20 minutes. That's what I'm saying. Your heart or your muscular system are out of balance to the zones and therefore you, this equation or this answer or this approach is a little skewed for you. And again, that's why I like to test frequently so that we're catching accurate data. And the more data we have, the more we can determine what you're looking for. Many, many men and masters athletes um, struggle with this aspect, right? Going that slow 
right? They, they're stronger, they're bigger guys, let's say they weigh 190 or 200 or even, yeah, or in the 180s, but for them to ride up a hill to keep their heart rate in zone two or even low zone three is impossible, right? Because the heart rate will quickly jump up at the slightest effort of the heart, of the muscles. And it'll take a while. We have to have them ride on flatter roads or run on flatter terrain because otherwise they're constantly hiking or it's not even worth for them to ride in the hills. So, and it's a, it's a huge source of zone two frustration and it constantly comes up. So, um, so again, to answer this question, Steve, uh, it, it depends on what your coach is looking to have you do. I would assume regular tempo runs is going to have the stimulus of pace work, race pace work. That's typically what longer tempo runs are. Now, you wrote regular tempo runs. So, for example, it's a great tool for many coaches to have a, a weekly tempo run. And so that way you can gauge your improvement by a weekly 10-mile tempo run. So if you're always in zone three and you're running 10 miles, right, your time as you get fitter should come down as you're running those 10, 10 miles. And it's a very good um, psychological as well as physical effect. We want to stimulate every zone. It's just a question of how much time we're spending each zone and what you need for your training for the type of 50K you're doing, super hilly or not hilly, a lot of steady state running. Well, if that 50K is pretty flat or of that 50K, uh, 25, 30K is pretty flat and steady. Well, yeah, some zone three work is, is surely going to help you. The only part there that I have observed and why I stay away from that, me personally, in my coaching approach, is because I have you train at zone two for long runs, but I have you race at zone three. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, just because you're training at zone two doesn't mean you're race, not racing at zone. That doesn't mean that you're racing at zone two. When we're fresh, the heart rate seems to jump a good zone higher very easily. And so, what feels like zone two is actually zone three on race day. And that's why I'd rather you train a tired zone two because when you're fresh, that'll be a, a very relaxed, quick, easy coming zone three. And you know, even if it creeps into zone four, you're prepared for it, you're trained for it, because we want a fresh heart, and um, th and therefore um, predict and, and prepare ahead of time for that zone to jump up by almost a zone when you're fresh and rested and relaxed and well-fueled and well-hydrated and got plenty of sleep and tapered for your, your A race. All right, next question, quadricep cramping. Hi, Chris. I listened to your recent interview on the Ritual podcast and felt compelled to reach out to you for advice. I'll be 51 in December, active road cyclist between 150 and 200K per week for 3.5 years. So, um, you know, about 120 miles, 100 to 120 miles a week. Solid. Here's the issue. I participate in four to five grand fondos each year. When I'm really pushing hard and I reach 80 to 90 km, my quadriceps start cramping really bad to the point where I almost have to stop riding. I'm mindful of hydration. Cramping and hydration are not interlinked, 
most of the time. Keep that in mind. We've talked about that on here on this podcast. Um, and I try to consume about 750 milliliters of water every 40 kilometers. That's about right, every hour. I thought maybe not getting enough electrolytes, so I've been adding a natural product called Vega Sport, but I'm still cramping. Yes, because electrolytes, bananas, fluids aren't usually the reason for cramp, quad cramping or any type of cramping. It's called the fatigue muscle. Um, I'm beginning to think that it could be related to poor sleep. I usually don't get more than five hours each night. Oh my gosh, gasp. Um, and as a result, my body might not be flushing out the bad chemicals. I'm not sure what to do. Do I need to train harder and build up more tolerance? Or do you think it has more to do with the sleep issues? Is there a blood test that can be done to see if I have a hormonal imbalance? Okay, a lot in here. And again, all you guys, all these questions, I'm just answering to the best of my ability. I'm not saying my answer is the right answer or is the scientific answer. Um, you know, I'm not a doctor. I only play one on the internet. And um, yeah, so please don't. Uh, I've gotten a few of these where it's like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yes, in some cases, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And I don't pretend to know everything. I just can share what I've learned, what I observe, what I do with my athletes, how I've seen it successfully done, and the feedback I've gotten and the growth we've gone from from there. And so that's all I can do. So, um, which is what this topic often brings up. So cramping is a fatigued muscle in this case, right? Not in this case, in many cases, sorry. Um, when a muscle is fatigued, it's going to, it's going to look for a more efficient way to, um, flush out byproducts, lactate being a byproduct of physical activity. In many cases, lactate is still used up into a certain point by expanding and contracting muscle, right? Lactate is a good thing. We use it. But at some point, we overflow the bathtub. We've talked about this on lactate threshold and lac um, um, aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold. At some point, the bathtub overflows. The body can no longer absorb, process, flush the amount of lactate being produced. It's too much. It's going, there's more being produced than it is being flushed out, being used. And so therefore, at that point, the body starts figuring out better ways before the muscles stop working to um, fire that muscle. And that muscle will fire and ignore certain dead spots or draining spots or fatigued spots or injured spots or where the signals that go through the muscle, right? Signals, electric signals and so forth with regards to back to the nervous system and so forth that um, it will avoid certain areas. And those areas cramp up. They're not getting the proper attention, oxygen, blood flow, everything. Right, because we're using a different avenue. We're using a different channel to allow that muscle to work. This is how I like to explain it. Exercise physiology and science, there's way more depth to this. And they're even there, they're not sure what really causes cramping. There's so many theories out there, but most have resulted lately in, in the last 10 years, in it's a fatigued muscle. It's not some sort of, 
electrolyte imbalance. In some cases, it has shown to be. And in other cases, yes, um, fluids has helped. And in other cases, yes, sodium has helped. But have you ever noticed that the cramp comes back despite the sodium, despite the, it, or how a couple days later, you're still sore in that spot that you cramped? It was a fatigued muscle. Right, and a lot of times, uh, a, a cramp turns into an issue because that area is so tight, and it got so um, complacent, and lack of minerals and needed blood flow to that area. That's why you massage it. That's why you stretch it out to sort of force blood flow to that area so that it is part of the expansion and contraction and a fluid and supple and relaxed muscle use again. But anyway, I digress. So um, what is most likely the case here that um, I'm, when I'm pushing really hard and I reach 80 to 90K, um, well, if you train 200K, 150 to 200K a week and you're pushing too hard for 80 to 90K and most likely riding way above your pay grade um, for 80 to 90K, Right. So now if our entire weekly um, kilometers mileage is um, 150K to 200K and half of it now you just did all at once all out or very strong or very hard effort or above your supposed what you're supposed to do from an effort level, even in a grand fondo, it's not a race. It's a just, it's an event. You're not going to win. Um, so you're there with your buddies, you're doing a grand fondo, you're having some fun, but you're probably riding a bit too hard. Well, of course your quad's going to cramp. And I don't like the fact that it's your quad cramping. That to me means that the pressure on the muscle pushing down on the pedal stroke is being overused, engaged, and therefore that's a lot of mashing and pressure on the pedal, right? And in the that's not a good cycling form. So in this case, I would I would start drilling down as the coach into that. What's your cycling form? What's your cadence? And how hard are you riding? And why are you doing 80 to 90K at a hard effort when I'm pushing hard? That's what I'm going by here. And my total mileage is, let's say, averages 170 to 180 a week. So now I just did half of my weekly mileage in the first probably two, two hours at tempo or threshold. Yes, quite clear that it's an effort. It's a fatigue muscle. It's going harder than you're trained for, for longer. And it's also a technique riding style as in form, posture, ability of the pedal stroke on the bike. So I now would more sleep help? Sure. I'm not saying, but I don't think more sleep is the reason for your cramping. I think more sleep would help your training adaptations and your ability to go stronger for those first 80 or 90 kilometers. Maybe we reduce the mileage, the kilometers riding ridden every week, and instead put some more um, purpose and specificity specificity and deliberate training in there if our outcome is to ride hard for the first 80 to 90 kilometers of a grand fondo four to five times a year we might need to change that training mileage or that approach and work on some different things to address that quadricep cramping too so technique training volume and um effort level being too hard 
might have to put that ego in check a little bit, the first 80, and of that Grand Fondo, which is often, those are often up 160K, 140K, 130K, so the, and focus more on the last 60K, or focus more on the second 80K, or something like that. Warm up more gradually, dial up the effort, have a different strategic approach to that event. So I'm not even sure if Mark listens to the podcast because he said, I listened to your recent interview on the Rich Roll podcast. So who knows if he's even hearing this. I'll tell him to listen to this one. All right, one more question. Um, oh, this, this is a deep one. Um, it's a long one. So I will take a brief moment to read through it in order to capture all the, the details properly. Okay, well, I'll just dive into this one. Um, loyal listener of your podcast, look forward to it every week. Thank you for the great insights and input you share. Um, I'm interested in your feedback and some challenges I've encountered recently with regard to training for my first marathon. By the way, this person, I sent them a note saying, I'm going to, would you like me to discuss it on the podcast or just have me respond to your email? And she was okay with me doing it on the podcast. So um, in most cases, if there's anything longer or more personal, I always check with you, the question, uh, uh, the person sending the question, to make sure that it's okay with you. Unless you said, feel free to share this on the podcast. Um, training for first marathon. I'm 49, consistently active since college, primarily a swimmer, 20 plus years. Some weight training and yoga have been mixed in as well. I've run on and off a few years over the years, but nothing serious. Some five and 10 Ks here and there. Been told that I have bad knees. Um, um, also, uh, side note, grew up in a family that thought running was just asking for troubles and lead to injuries. 2016, I decided to challenge my beliefs, began running regularly, mainly to change things up, but also due to um, encouragement by friends at the gym who convinced me that I am just as capable as anyone else to be a solid runner. Without reading any further, you absolutely are. Um, anybody who says you can't do something, I mean, other than specific um, physiological reasons or, or physical reasons, it, that's different. But something like this, um, you don't know until you try. Last, uh, last fall, I ran my first half, half marathon and absolutely loved the routine of having a training plan and accomplishing something that seemed a little scary. Great job. You know, I mean, that's the important thing that we all have some sort of goals that scare us a little. And quite honestly, that's something um, I'm looking for in 2019 um, with regards to competition, what event I'm going to do next. And it's the same thing. I'm looking for something that's a little scary that uh, puts me on the edge of what I've done in the past and my capabilities and uh, something that I can train for where I don't just know, okay, I can do it, but it's just a question of how well I'll do it. I want to do something where it's a question of, can I do it? And uh, I don't know what that is yet, but I think for all of us, that's the adventure of this. And I think the scariness, the curiosityness of it creates the experience. Um, and I know I'm going off on a little tangent here, but um, but keep that in mind. We're closing out 2018 right now. We're in that preseason for a lot of athletes and so forth. And as you're looking into 2019, and I know many of you from a triathlon perspective or a 50, 100 mile running perspective, 
um, have to sign up early for next year's events. So you might already be locked into what you're doing or some exclusive marathons and some of the bigger Grand Slam ones and so forth. But if you're still trying to determine what you're doing, I always think that that's a great starting place, a great um, entry point into, all right, is it something that's really gonna challenge me, that's really gonna scare me so that I am committed to the training, um, also from a journey standpoint. And if it's something that scares us, that's on the edge of what we feel comfortable with, we're also gonna be stretched and taxed and um, um, challenged in our training as we prep for that event. Because it is in our training that we learn about it, that we learn about ourselves, learn how to deal with the diversity and the adversity of that event, of what we're getting ready for, so that the event becomes less daunting, still somewhat daunting, but less daunting because we've done a certain percentage of the distance or a certain percentage of the terrain or something like that, whatever the adventure is. And therefore, race day, event day, adventure day, will be daunting enough in its own way because we have to put it all together on that day or in those days if it's a multi-day event. Um, it's in an unknown territory. It's, in, it's, un, it's under the gun, right, under the pressure. So that day is daunting enough. So just because um, we've done a lot of it or maybe even the full distance or similar in training doesn't mean race day, event day, event week, event days won't be exciting enough. Don't overthink think that or overlook that. Um, but also, when it's on the edge of curiosity and scariness and um, what, what we deem, what we feel is possible for us, it also keeps us emotionally connected to the experience. Um, it allows us and our imagination to go into that place and the vision of that adventure unfolding with us starts earlier. If you already know the outcome, for example, a marathon, right? If you've done 10 marathons and you're going to do your 11th, or if you've done 10 Ironmans and you're going to do your 11th, or you've done 10 half marathons and you're going to do your 11th half marathon, you can close your eyes and pretty much A, project how it's going to feel, what it's going to look like, how it's going to unfold in front of you. And therefore, your um, excitement and your emotional connection to that will be limited. I mean, it's just a natural response. Our body is familiar with it. And so our body will also fight us, not in that it wants to do well, but in, in that it knows the routine. And it will um, try to find efficiencies and um, 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 homeostasis, for back, lack of a better word, efficiencies and the course of least resistance, I should say, in order to achieve that outcome. And that really doesn't put forth our most creative, our most um, curious, our most open self with regards to growth and learning and excitement and curiosity. And that's why imagination and that emotional connection to an event is so important. And it's not the only thing, it's not the most important thing, but it definitely helps with the training. And less so, as you guys all know, my my my, my, my uh, struggle with the word motivation. It's an important component motivation, but it can't be the only component. But emotional connection to the adventure, to the scariness, to the curiosity, to, um, is actually helpful with regards to motivation 
and with our ability to, or our curiosity, close our eyes and think what that day might be like, because we've never done anything like that before. And that ties into how often we've talked about why our first events are often maybe even our fastest races. There's countless athletes I've worked with and talked to who say that their first half Ironman, their first 70.3, was often their fastest 70.3. And that's often tied to because of that curiosity, that zero expectations, that closing my eyes and just feeling like I'm just going to go hard for five hours, that fearlessness, but that um, lack of respect and just going for it because we don't know any better creates a totally different excitement and energy and will versus with something that we're familiar with the pain. If we knew prior to our first 70.3 how badly the run would hurt, well, of course we'd temper our bike ride. And for us to ever return to that ability to ride that hard and, and run ourselves inside out on our first 70.3 because we don't know what's to come and how much harder it'll get or how much more it will hurt, well, that takes a while to train ourselves to overcome that again. And so back to the question here, that's great. It should be somewhat scary. And for all of you, I can't stress enough the, the, the importance of having something out there that is somewhat scary and curious and really um, fires our imagination to what we believe we will do and what we believe we are capable of and how we will grow from that and what we will learn along the way. That's fun. And that's what I've learned a lot more about lately, the emotional experience is always more powerful than just the experience. And we all live for remembering experiences, positive or negative ones. Those are the ones that set markers in our mind and our spirit and our soul and in our memories. And the ones we pull back, uh, draw upon later on, looking back upon. But when they're more and more emotional, meaningful, caring, um, curious, scary, overwhelming, exciting, that really captures our imagination, those are the ones we remember. And part of your athletic outcomes, part of your endurance training should be, should be evoking that type of terminology and that type of um, creative output because that's where we're really excited and curious and want to learn and absorb and apply ourselves differently than a known outcome. And what creates a known outcome and that's memorable is one where we then have experiences that are higher and stronger and faster and better and a, a result, right? When you see yourself and what you'll feel like standing on the podium, for example, or what you'll feel like when you break 10 hours and how proud you will be of the work and the accomplishment of that, for example, or what you will feel like when you um, reach X height or X distance and so forth. Not about time, not about podium, but for example, 100 miles or 50 miles. So there's different ways to qualify it. But that first scary distance adventure should always be part of it. And you can still do a 100 miler, or you can still do an Ironman and have a result based, but maybe find something in 2019 also, that's out of the box that challenges you in a different way, in a curious yet scary way, just like this. All right.
<laughs> Sorry for that tangent once again. Uh, a little scary. I was hooked. I continued running after the half marathon a little time off and developed posterior tibial tendonitis earlier in the winter. Um, there you go. Little time off. I can already see where this is going. Cold weather. Um, soreness. Not enough rest after a build, never having built really a running history before, pounding of pavement, taxing of muscles, joint, cartilages, meniscus, all that stuff. It does add up. And so if we don't give it time to recover, to rest, to let all the, the fatigue in the muscles and this tax and the strain on the body to sort of reset, it gets dangerous. Likely because I was overdoing it on the treadmill. Oi! There we go, treadmill. I live in Michigan, go blue. And I hate the cold. <laughs> I don't blame you. That's a different type of cold. First time I came to Michigan for school, and wow. <laughs> I never felt cold like that before. Um, anywho, coupled with pronating flat feet, it was apparent that the perfect storm for this injury after taking about six to eight weeks off and religiously doing prescribed strength exercises for the feet, I recovered and focused on building a good base, mainly staying in Z2 for the rest of the winter. This past January, I decided to sign up for my first marathon here in Detroit. Just happens to fall on my 50th birthday. That's awesome. Uh, training over the summer. Sorry for the long intro, but in general, these are all little details and backgrounds to help highlight why everybody is unique in their circumstances, but many of the concepts and overall um, approaches to this training are not unique and can be applied to a lot of people. And so what leads to an injury might be unique to a lot of people because everybody has to put the puzzle pieces together in the incorrect way to get that injury. Um, and some people put five or six puzzle pieces together really well, and they're doing great. And then the next five or six puzzle pieces around it are completely crooked and wrong. And despite good intentions, despite a good start, despite good signals, it all comes crashing down. So that's why we do these emails, because there's so much learning in each one of them. Um, training over the summer went, went very well. I was following a 16-week plan. I felt I was absorbing the workouts, making desired adaptations, and finally starting to believe I was capable of running 26.2 after completing a couple long runs in the 18 to 20 mile range. Good. Three weeks out of the marathon, the tendonitis flared up again in the same foot after a 20 miler at a hilly metro park where I probably pushed it too hard on the marathon pace interval. I think you all can see where this is going. With the marathon now a week away, and this is a few weeks ago, I'm catching up emails, October 13th. So this is um, 10 days ago. I've come to terms with the fact that this condition is going to prevent me from running the race. So even in the writing here, we can tell what most likely were some of the red flags. One, it's your first marathon. There is no marathon pace. And that's why I like the heart rate training and the zone training um, in this phase so much because it keeps us true to what our heart and our body is telling us, not a pace number 
that might not be applicable to us, might not be applicable to your history of having been injured after a half marathon and jumping up too quickly in the miles or doing the pounding too steadily, let's say on a treadmill or not giving ourselves enough time for um, adaptation, recovery and so forth, where you had to do strengthening exercises for the feet. So already we see enough signals here that um, we don't want to put ourselves into a box of how the training should go and ver instead apply this in a long-term perspective, which was plenty here, um, given from winter all the way to an October run, 10 months. But that 16-week plan most likely was built for a narrower perspective of pace, running history, having done... Um, a half marathon, maybe not a year before or uh, 11 months before, but instead um, uh, three, four weeks before starting the 16-week plan. So a variety of different factors where we're trying to fit something in that um, might not apply to you, the person, you, the athlete, you, your history, you, your mind of what you've been told, you, your running form, you, your overpronating flat feet, you, who you are. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but we need to think about, or you need to think about, how am I doing this? And am I just following the conventional plan? Why am I following the conventional plan? I already know that I'm fighting against what many believe I can do in this, if I can do this marathon and how I go about it. So I already need to step out of the normal way and go super conservative or go different or, or think outside the box. And outside the box is definitely not marathon pace. And that's what I would say so far in this email. It's very important to understand that. Um, and most of my athletes, for the first time marathon, we don't have much of a goal pace. Now, I stand corrected on that. That's actually not true. I do mix up some goal pace in there. But we've already seen, based off of the zone two miles and the zone three miles in our buildup, where that is settling and we have a pretty good idea therefore what our low zone three pace is and that truly is an accurate reflection of you the athlete currently right and so that i think ties into it as well um, when i went to a sports doc this week his first comment was why would you want to run that far that's where i would walk out the door <laughs> Because then I would say, well, I'm actually doing this as a build-up to a 100-mile run, and what would he do, fall over? Um, which annoyed me off the bat, good, and was a red flag that this is the wrong doctor for me. I agree. At any rate, after the exam, he confirmed the condition would be tendonitis and said that my foot structure is not in my favor for running due to overpronation. FYI, FYI I, do, I do wear custom orthotics. Um if you looked at some of the best marathoners in the world, <laughs> um, most doctors could find some sort of pronation, overpronation, underpronation, weird foot issues with them. It's all about the efficiency and the economy and the foot strike of yours and how we apply that to make it stronger, more resilient, that it could deal with the residual bout effect, right? What we talk about on this podcast. And then also importantly, um, keeping in mind your running technique, right? 
what works for you and building that up. Now, I've talked before about now, there's always the perfect, beautiful running technique on, uh, that you see um, by beautiful runners. But that's not applicable to us. But that doesn't mean we're not fully capable of running efficiently, economically, um, avoiding injuries um, with smooth motions. We just have to find that for us. And that's what I talk about. A lot of us have our natural running form. Run barefoot on the infield of a track, not on the track, but on the notice how you're landing and how the body and the nerve endings at the bottom of the feet quickly make adjustments so that you don't pound the heels, that you do land lightly, that you do remain with a bounce and, and limit the time of your feet on the, on the ground. That's a lot what happens, right? Running um, A barefoot gives us a great indication of natural running form and B, running backwards. I know this is a little bit more tricky, but I do this with a lot of athletes when I go to the track with them. I have them run backwards. And if you want to try this, next time you go to the track or, or have a, a smooth surface, not on the road or anywhere, I don't want you falling over. When you're at the track, run backwards. Use your arms just like they would in running form, but do that backwards. Notice how softly when your feet go back, they land pushing back forward as in away from you and how much softer you land. Why? Because you're being more gentle. Your, your body is trying to anticipate and feel and stay light. When we run forward, we clog along as if we're running on, on two pirate leg stubs, like boom, boom, boom. We forget how gently and softly to land. Running barefoot feet helps that nice, good strides in barefoot and running backwards. You just notice, wow, why am I doing it like that? And that's what you want to continue to think about. Why am I doing it like that? Why am I not landing lighter? And again, this has nothing to do with aesthetically pleasing. It's about you envisioning yourself running light, efficiently, economically, and in your form, in your turnover. Now, I do like to work on higher turnover, but that's a different question right now. But in general, so Back to the question. Um, needless to say, this feedback reinforced all the negative beliefs I had about running growing up and raised my doubts of ever being able to handle 26.2. Most frustrating is the fact that I feel adequately fit to handle the mileage. Of course you're capable of running 26.2. Can you run and do your training on grass? Can you do it on trail? Can you do it on softer surfaces? Can you do it in a non-traditional way? Can you build up your aerobic engine um, and fitness cycling and limit your running? Can you do water running? Can you do hiking? Can you do uh, uphill running, which is much less pounding on the body? Can you do, I mean, we can go over 25 different methodologies to get you to run 26.2, right? You don't have to run 26.2 every week. You have to do it once and feel good about it. And that's again, coaching, right? This is what I talk about. And I've, I've had this topic actually listed right here on a piece of paper for a while, but it just didn't fit. And that is for many, many, many coaches, and this is meant for um, a critical purpose. This is more meant from a business perspective. There's sort of this consumer coaching plan out there. And there's other coaches out there that agree with me on this, uh, specifically two really well-known track coaches um, that I've talked to about this. And they, we all feel that, not we all, I'm just going to 
talk about myself. I'm not going to include other people for a moment. But just to highlight, I have talked to a few other coaches about this as sort of a little vent. But anyway, there's a lot of consumer coaching plans out there, which is um, I will sell you a plan and this is what typically works in order to get the results. If athlete does plan, coach writes plan, the outcome will be this. And you will pay X amount of money for this plan. And that does not mean magically the results will happen, right? A plan on paper and the athlete executing the said plan does not guarantee results. It's that simple. It's just like any type of financial transaction, you know, past results do not guaranteed future outcomes, right? This with all that verbiage in any type of financial disclosure, right? Same thing. And so this is what I'm saying. Coaching is about how to find a way to make it work for you and your um, limitations and your schedule and your body and your history. And of course, there's situations where athletes will, will run into a wall. Yes. And it might not be possible. And we'll have to try a different method or a different method. But that doesn't mean we stop trying, number one, and B, change the belief that we can, right? I fully believe that you, the person writing this email, and most are capable of running 26.2 on pavement. It's just how do we build up to it? What's our expectation of it? What's our timeline for it? We've had this conversation before. And so, and, and most of this conversation in, in this format, will I be a, a, adequately fit to handle the mileage and what the doctor told me? Yeah. If you follow the consumer coaching plan approach, that might not work. No, 16-week plan, right? There is a way, there is a method, and we'll, we, there is a way to make it work. And that's sort of my answer with this. I realize you're not a doctor and live, have limited information about my situation. That said, I would gradually, greatly appreciate any advice you, and input you may be willing to offer. Yes, that is it. That there's many ways to skin this cat, for lack of a better term, sorry. Um, and we will, not we, you're not one of my athletes, but I believe there's many ways to achieve that outcome. Like I said, softer surfaces, less stress on the body and the pounding on the body during the training in order to achieve the net result in order to run for five-ish hours, let's say four-ish hours on pavement on a given day in the future. How do we go about that? We need to bring a build, build a system, a fitness system, a breathing pattern system, a cardio energy fitness system that can handle that. And then we need to build a resilience and leg strength that can handle that pounding and some specific miles in your shoes and doing the said activity. Now, in most cases, most consumer coaching plans will have those th three things in one, running, running volume, running speed, running resilience. But can we break those three apart? Sure. Why not? Again, ask that question. Why not? Can we build up fitness? Can you be on a rowing machine? Can you be on hikes? Can you be on bike rides? Can you be swimming? Can you do water running long enough to build up the tolerance to do something at a certain heart rate? Remember, the heart doesn't care what you're doing. 
whether jumping jacks, running, swimming, biking, hiking, rowing, whatever. And so can you build up your heart rate that it can hold something for four or five hours doing something other than running? Yes. Okay, so now we can do that. Next, how do we build the, the, the pounding and the strength in the legs? Well, we can do weights. We can do strength work like that. We can do body weight strength work. We can do different type of um, strength work as in hill repeats while running uphill, right? As I was earlier saying, um, with regards to leg turnover, right? When doing it uphill, way less pounding, but we're really stimulating that heart rate and that oxygen use and the motion of running. Now, again, we gotta protect the overpronation and we gotta protect that foot and the flat footedness and so forth, right? So we don't want a lot of downhill and flat pavement pounding treadmill, for example. So. We can work around that. So now we've got two of the three components. And now we need to fit some time in the running shoes, in the running form. And maybe that's on flatter surfaces that are softer. It's not ideal. Is it boring? Yes. <laughs> Unless you have a running field, grass field, that's a one mile loop. Maybe. Many people do. I don't know where you live, but oftentimes if you're in the Midwest somewhere or somewhere where there's a lot of space or open space, oh, you're, in, I'm sorry, you're in Michigan. Um, well, that might be harder to find, but some, somewhere where you find a longer grass stretch, even if it's just a couple of soccer fields strung together, yes, it's boring. I'm not saying that, but it can be done. Right? In the winter, yes, it's going to be hard in Michigan, but that's not what we're looking for. So we look for something more in the late summer so that, we, again, we have those summer months to use the weather and the environment to our advantage. And then it all adds up. Now we've put all three components together. And as we build up that resilience, that tolerance, that foot, and we monitor it closely, maybe there's weeks, not all the time, but maybe one week a month we put it all together and put those three components of um, fitness, of durability, and of sports-specific technique into one, right? Remember, I often use that acronym from with my athletes called STRESS. STRESS, the S stands for strength, the T stands for technique, the R stands for recovery, the E stands for endurance, the first S stands for speed, and the second S for specific specificity. Stress, that's what training is. Strength, technique, recovery, endurance, speed, and specificity. You're gonna get pretty close if you address all those every week. There you go. And maybe once a month we put that all together and then we separate it again. Again, I'm actually toying with the idea um, of changing a training plan for a few people this coming year into something completely different, especially when it comes to triathlon of why train all three sports, right? Why? It's the conventional why, it's how it's always been done, but why? Sure, do we need to run off the bike? Yeah, eventually, but all the time? No, do we need to do that in January, February, March, April, May, June, if we're getting ready for an August race? Maybe a little in July. But how about a week of just swimming with an occasional bike or a run? How about a week of only biking with the occasional run or swim? How about a week of just running? And then maybe the fourth week is all three. I don't know. But just convention. Throw it out the window and try something different. And of course, it, it's going to require some monitoring and back and forth with the athlete on that. And I, I'll need the right athletes to do that with. 
but it's it's something different and it's something well why not why not try it why hasn't anybody done it maybe somebody has and they're just not telling us (laughs) or they're super successful with it and they don't want to tell anybody but yeah just am i thinking out of the box am i doing things just like everybody else does or am i doing things because i think there's some progress to be made here in a different way look at this problem from a different angle and that's one way maybe not the only way but so back to that email um i think it's janine yeah there's a way to do it and don't let people easily tell you no and don't believe just because Many people have a fear of the achiness and the pain early on associated with running and the pounding and the early breakdown that that means it's not for you. There comes a point, and many of you know what I'm talking about, where the running transitions from agonizing and achy and heavy to light and bounding and enjoyable. And the brain is just off and you're enjoying your environment and the surrounding and nature and fields and forests and just running and feeling alive and literally breathing the air and feeling the nature and the environment around you like you're a part of nature, like you're an animal, like you're a part of nature running through it. There's definitely times I felt that running on trails early in the morning or late in the afternoon. Not that I am somebody outside of nature, cutting through their space, but I'm I'm a part of the space because I feel light and I feel connected and I feel vibrant and I feel the air and I feel everything in my body responding to the stimuluses around it. And you can get there too, Janine. I believe that. So that's a long answer to a long question. All right, let's go through the last question and then close this one out. It is 1.45 already into it, and uh, I hope you guys are still with me here. Um, Hi, Chris. Your weekly word podcast is phenomenal. I've gleaned so much good information from the episodes and I've listened to, and I look forward to using my ultra marathon training next year. Clearly, I have a passion for coaching. Yes, I do. My question revolves um, around the off-season or the time between training cycles. And how it relates to zone two training. I know you've spoken often about the benefits of zone two training on the podcast already, but I'm still a little bit confused, curious about how to structure it. I was wondering if you could talk about the weekly structure in the off and in between season. Do you believe that 100% of the weekly run should be at zone two? Is there still a place for some zone three, four, five time mixed in? For context, when I'm training for an ultra, I run six to seven times a week, three to four easy zone two runs, two speed or tempo workouts, and one or two long runs. After a goal race, I usually take two, three weeks off, but then I'm itching to get back into running. I understand the value of zone two runs, but worry I won't stay connected to speed aspect of my fitness if I go completely zone two. (laughs) Am I just being overly worried? All right, so this is a good question and actually something that I'm going to send out an article on this next newsletter um, that a link to an article that Phil Maffetone, Dr. Phil Maffetone wrote and the godfather of zone two training because it ties into showing that even at zone two training, and many of my athletes are familiar with this, despite training primarily zone two, 
I would say 90% zone two. Um, their half marathon, 10K times, 5K times also got faster. Their, one of my athletes especially, he couldn't believe it. Um, he trained even below zone two on his cycling wattages, not below zone two, but on the low side of zone two, we created a clear barrier between zone two and zone, zone three of a no-go zone, no-fly zone. And despite riding at very low wattages, his top-end wattages, his thresholds at aerobic and anaerobic thresholds, and his VO2 max all increased, despite doing zero time there. And I see this time and time again, that despite not doing any speed work, the speed is still there. Now, relatively, it just shows what you're also capable of if you do the speed work properly on top of the speed that you've gained by just doing zone two work. The fitness, the, um, the mitochondria density, your ability to upload oxygen, your oxygen uptake, right? Um, your economy, your efficiency, all those things happen at zone two. So that when you ask your body to work harder, like we've talked about on this podcast, that pushing more cars through the LA freeway system is going to cause a traffic jam. You're not going to drive any faster. But creating more capillaries and mitochondria and less density and more um, networks, more freeways in that LA freeway system, now it's less congested and you can get somewhere faster. It's the same thing, delivering oxygen through the, to the working muscles through more um, capillaries and mitochondria will just make you fire faster and hold that speed longer and faster. And when we're talking about holding speed longer and faster, we're talking anything longer than four or five minutes. Yes. Um, beyond three to four minutes, four or five minutes, we switch over to primarily fat burning and the glycogen, ATP, creatine, all those things, the, the initial uh, burst of power and speed is gone and we settle into a different energy system. Now, there's still a lot of glycogen and, and um, um, energy being provided but, and that the fat being used is still quite low. And the longer we go and the more we slow down, the, the two sort of change their balance or their weighting. And soon, by the time you get to a certain speed or slow down enough, you're burning primarily fat and very, very little glycogen, right? But anything longer than four or five minutes is already con considered endurance in running or even in cycling and for sure in swimming, right? So, um, how do we make that more efficient via zone two, in my opinion, and creating a better network and efficiency and economy of delivering oxygen to the working muscles so that you can maintain the output for longer. I'm uh, trying to find this piece of information that I had the other day with regards to this. Uh, oh, I'm trying to find it here. Sorry that I'm sort of um, interrupting the pot. Uh, yes. In order to have efficient fat oxidation, right? What we're talking about, um, having also uh, your, your fat burning qualities create an oxidative effect, which means transporting also as you, well oxygen into the working muscles via the process of burning fat. 
you need more mitochondria for that. It's, that's how exercise physiology works. Fat, fat oxidation requires mitochondria. And again, at zone two, we are creating, we are building a better network. We're creating mitochondria density. So back to your question. Yes, in the off season, I would primarily want to do zone two because, um, or in the preseason or in between season, because I want to work on form and footwork and other things so that when I do need to kick up the race specific intensities or courses or terrain or the multiple races in a variety of weeks or the race season, I have worked on those things and they are providing a benefit to me. So um, I would probably say in the preseason, I'm spending 90% of my time in zone two and 10% of time in three, four, and five. Now, as the season progresses, that might go down to 80 or 75 or 70% and 30% three, four, and five. But the other question I would have in here is when I'm training for an ultra six to seven times a week, awesome, that sounds fine. Good that you're able to recover from that. Keep in mind your recovery too. To have more effective zone three, four, and five days, you must have the recovery. And I would be careful to schedule them too dramatically around each other or sticking to a schedule because um, as your intensity or increase, as you increase the time at zone four, right? Now you have to change that structure that you're talking about in the week because um, you've increased the non-zone two time. Um, which requires more recovery time, which might mean you're only training five to six hour, days a week versus six to seven because you need an extra recovery day or an afternoon um, of full recovery or very easy going for a walk or something like that. Um, but um, it's three to four easy zone two runs, okay. Two speed or tempo workouts, okay. And one to two long runs. What are you? What heart rate are you doing in those one, one to two long runs? Because if I look at this right, if I were to do this, I'm looking at the one to two long runs are surely zone two or less. But what I find, the longer you run, the more your body just naturally falls into zone two. Um, so I would say, when I say longer you run, like beyond two and a half to three hours, as of three to five hours, it settles into that heart rate anyway, that more natural go all day pace state heart rate. Um, so those would be zone two. So then the three to four easy zone two runs, are those just recovery runs, 45 minutes? So then we might be doing too much zone two then because that means one to two long runs zone two, I hope, three to four zone, easy zone two runs, and now two speed or tempo workouts. Um, so I would probably mix with that structure a little bit. Um, I would say two long, one long run, one medium run zone two. Um, and, and scatter this tempo and speed either after the long run. I've talked about I'm a big proponent, even in the preseason, of doing a long, easy aerobic run one day and next day following it up with leg turnover, bounce, speed, effort in order to stimulate that on somewhat fatigued muscles. Now, not at the end of a long run, that would be you're just doing damage or doing bad form, but you've had a good meal, you've recovered, you got sleep, you rehydrated, and the next day you go out and run, you know, a progressive 10K or 
you run a 20, 20, 20, um, 20 easy, 20 fast, 20 easy again. And that fast is really all about leg turnover and body and feet not touching the ground, right? High turnover, fast effort. Um, again, 20 minutes, not that taxing, but you're thinking more about leg turnover and light on the feet and maximizing output in order to do that on somewhat fatigued, tired body from that three, four, five hour run the day before. And as we get fitter, I would actually increase that speed work, but no more than an hour at any point, even if you're in the middle of the season, let's say you're doing a five, six hour run, seven hour run on Saturday, or you've done a three hour run on Friday, a five hour run on Saturday, I would still clean it up with a 10K or something progressive or some speed work on Sunday. And if we're still looking for volume in there because we're getting ready for a 100 miler, for example, maybe then in the morning, some more easy miles, and in the afternoon, a short 30-minute um, high leg turnover, a bunch of strides or shorter intervals of like, you know, 10 times 90 seconds, high leg turnover, high cadence, high effort with 90-second um, recovery, right? Walk, um, not taxing enough to really build up too much lactic um, acid, but on the other hand, the stimulus that we're looking for, right? Because 10 times 90 seconds is, you know, 15 minutes of speed. So um, that's how I would answer that. I would, yeah, but in the off season. So the other piece there with regards to Phil Maffetone, the why, why, why I brought it up, the preseason is actually a really good time to start the zone two process from scratch. And this is where it gets interesting. And I know I'm going along here, sorry. Um, determine your zone two. Go out and run 10 one-milers or eight one-milers with very little rest or even steady eight miles on a repeatable loop, a loop that you can do again. Somewhat flat, somewhat steady, can be done on pavement. And monitor your progress every three weeks. Do that same one again at that same heart rate. And watch yourself as the, the heart rate stays the same as the pace comes down. That's the desired outcome of zone two training. So to answer the, your, your entire question here, you want to do that in the preseason, offseason, uh, in between season to make sure that your body is absorbing the training, recovering properly, doing the proper work, but yet still going faster at a low heart rate where it's not taxing your body. That's ideal. And this is a great thing to do at this time of year because you have a couple of months if you're here in the Northern Hemisphere, um, before the racing season really gets going. So you could do six or seven of those rotations, maybe six every three weeks. So, um, you know, zero, three, six, nine, twelve, twelve weeks in, now we've done five of those tests or five of those, you know, runs. Um, so 15 weeks is basically less than four months. You've gotten six of those data points to see at a steady heart rate if your pace is going down. Now, this requires good sleep, good recovery, the proper pre-day, not just being completely shelled from a long weekend and then doing it on a Monday. Like, be thoughtful in when you do it, but it's a very effective way, A, to see that your zone two is working, and B, that you're applying it right and understanding it right, because that's how zone two works. And that'll be in that article with the... Um, newsletter that I will be sending out next week after I get back from Florida. But I'll put together the contents while I'm traveling and on planes with children. So 
All right, I hope that answers that. Um, if not, feel free to send me a side email that you just want answered for yourself. All right, have a great week, everybody. I'm glad we knocked out a bunch of emails, um, email uh, questions this week. I have uh, one, two to go with regards to general topics and one, two, three, four, five on the nutrition side, which I know I still want to have Emily on and sit down with her. Um, so we're going to do that here in the coming days when I get back from Florida. I'm only going to Florida for like 72 hours. Um, so yeah, I look forward to recording more and catching up on some of the topics here. And I hope today was helpful and it's two hours. I'm sorry. Um, I know uh, it's uh, these are getting long, but hopefully you just click forward or jump ahead or skip or break this up somehow. So two hours. Oh my gosh, I think that's my longest one. Have a great week. Bye.